0: My name is Jill Phillips and I'm the creator of Who's Shoes, a popular approach to co-production. I was named as an HSJ100 wildcard and want to help give a voice to others, talking about their ideas and experiences. I'll be chatting with people from all sorts of different perspectives, walking in their shoes. If you are interested in the future of healthcare and like to hear what other people think, or perhaps even contribute at some point, Who's Shoes wildcard is for you. Today I'm talking to Angela Cornwall. She was introduced to me by Carol Munt, my podcast guest in episode 7. Carol knows exactly what I'm trying to achieve in this podcast series and she said I must talk to Angela. I'm so glad she introduced us as Angela is another wild card, using her experience as a family carer to make great things happen, to come up with ideas that would be really helpful to other families but as is so common, finding it difficult to get her solutions adopted to benefit as many people as possible. We will definitely talk about speedy boarding. It makes so much sense. Angela brings a wealth of experience, is very practical and proactive and like Carol, full of common sense and wanting care to be the best it can be and cost-effective. I know Angela has also got some really interesting changes going on in her life and some amazing plans for the future. I'm looking forward to getting to know her more today. So welcome, Angela. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and what's important to you?
1: Oh, hi. Good morning. My name is Angela Cornwall and um, I've been a carer for 35 years for my daughter who has a long term condition. Called diamond black fan anemia. My daughter has to have transfusions every month. She's had them from the age of one and she will do to the end of life. Natalie also has other complications with her health. She has cardiomyopathy with arrhythmia and she also has an ICD fitted. Through caring for my daughter you can imagine the amount of wealth of information and learning and stuff that I've done Within thirty five years of caring for her, the challenges that we've also faced um as being a parent carer, Natalie has multiple conditions which makes it very challenging for everybody, not just myself but and Natalie, but for everybody, the clinicians and everyone that kind of crosses Natalie's path within her care. So I decided to design a passport of care. Due to the challenges and, and the accessibility and, and the time wasting and the stress and the anxiety and the cost and effectiveness within the NHS of the way that care was being delivered, I then kind of designed a, a passport, a strategy of care for my daughter. Because what we were finding was that we were accessing care and protocols were in the way. and. When protocols are in the way, for example, what I mean by this is one time, Natalie's blood count can go from 12 to 7 within 24 hours. So her haemoglobin drops very quickly. This means that she needs a transfusion and it becomes life-threatening because all it does is drop. That is part of her condition. We were told one time we don't transfuse on a weekend so you could imagine my anxiety that came with we don't transfuse because that was the protocol, we don't transfuse. And I said, well, if you don't transfuse this young lady by the weekend, you're going to have a different, you know, it's going to be a different ball game altogether. So with all my knowledge and stuff of looking after Natalie through being a young person to now adult services and now Natalie is independently looking after herself, but through all my experience in kind of involvement, engagement, I was a very much, a very proactive mum. I was very engaged in Natalie's treatment. I was I was always asking questions and we wanted to know and we were very engaged in Natalie's condition. So much so, older Hay, we were the first to do portal cuffs at home. My biggest concern was my daughter will be under the NHS for all of her life from the day she's born to the day she dies how much time do we need to be spending here? You know, I was very scared of her being institutionalized and obviously spending more time in hospital than than she did, you know, having a normal life. So we kind of engaged with our services to um, you know, do portacuffs at home. Older Hay trained me. I was very keen as a mum to do as much as I can for Natalie. Um and I wanted to learn. I was very keen to learn about her condition um she had a portacath fitted due to being transfusion dependent and obviously Older Hay trained me to um to do the portacath which was you know absolutely for me as a parent that was just brilliant because we didn't have to spend that time in hospital because if Natalie spent time in hospital as a, a young um, as a young person obviously I had to you know I found by being involved and engaged in Natalie's care i found that we had more control and we could work together with the health team as well so which was really important for us because we wanted to learn everything and and we wanted to know everything about our condition and also what consultants never knew and practitioners never knew you know we also helped them as well to understand our condition because when natalie was diagnosed she was diagnosed with an orphan disease meaning it stands alone you know, I was given a piece of paper which only a consultant doctor could read. And that was my only information I was ever given because there was nothing, nothing at all about, you know, about diamond black fan anemia. The only report on it was a clinical report, which only when the consultant, it was actually a professor that gave it to me and said, Angela, you will not understand this because, you know, it, it's clinical And I just said, give it to me. I will try. And, you know, it it literally was trying to look at a completely different language. It really was. But I was grateful for that, because for me, that was really important. That was the only information I ever had. And if I had to hand that to another consultant, then he would understand it. So it was a really good link for me, even though I didn't understand it. So. But being a carer for for Natalie um for 35 years you know we we face a lot of challenges you know I was a hands on mum I cared for my young baby I cared for my young adult and obviously now Natalie's she's living independently so I that I don't need to do that now but we face a, a really lot of challenges at two points Natalie nearly lost her life she went into a cardiac arrest I had to do CPR to keep my child alive and that was at home and you know we really did have some challenges and I you know I think one thing that I would like to say is that don't look at that anxious mum as an anxious mum you know the anxious mum is anxious simply because she knows She's educated enough. You know, when you are looking after your family with long-term conditions, you are taught by the experts. You are taught by the experts.
0: As you're talking, I can see that how those different experiences led you to come up with a passport of care. I mean, having that clinical information that perhaps didn't make total sense to you but would work for somebody else to get it straight to them, to bring in your personal experiences, your knowledge of Natalie and the condition and so on. So tell us about the the passport and what your dream would be for that. So
1: my vision for the passport is it's it's tough. Being a mum, being a mum caring for a young baby, adult, it's it's challenging. It's challenging, it's tough. We just want just to go into Any healthcare and access, a service that is quality effective for the patient, cost effective for the NHS and a simple system. We don't want to go and wait in A&E because we don't need to wait there eight hours in A&E because if you look at our strategy of our pathway of care, we can show you Well, if you just do this, and you just do this, and you just do this, and you just do that, every person's care. You know, I have a saying, one coat doesn't fit all. So look at the need for the person that you're dealing with. You know, look at their needs, look at what is going to make it effective. No one wants to be in A&E longer than they need to. No one wants to be on a ward. My daughter now collectively collaborates with her team and her team collaborate and collectively work together. From the minute she goes in to have her treatment to the minute that she's finishing, it's effective. There's no time wasting. There's no money wasting. There's no life at risk. It is effective, it works, and it's just in and it's just out. So the reason for me for the passport was so important was because they were the challenges that we were up against. And also respecting the NHS. I had a massive issue with the money that was wasted. I could not believe it. It was ching, 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 ching. And the quality affected my daughter's life was affected by that time wasted because that meant that she had to spend more time unnecessarily in a place where she we struggled together there in the first place. So, you know, it's with young people, as adults, she's fine. But as young people, it's very difficult to, when you are part of your management of managing a condition long term, is to make sure that it is effective. Because, mentally it's hard enough for anyone dealing with a long-term condition so let's not make it harder let's make it easier let's make it a pleasure as much as you can say a pleasure rather than trauma let's take the trauma out of things going wrong you know waiting in places for hours why do we need to be in a hospital I remember one time I couldn't understand why we had a week in hospital. Appointment on Monday, appointment on Tuesday, appointment on Wednesday, appointment on Thursday. And I'm like, we're here on Monday. Can we spend the day here? Can you get the ENT people? Can we get the hematology? Can we get the heart people? Can we just make it one day? And we started pushing for that. And Older Hay worked with us. I've been using passports for the last five, six years, maybe more. And we've always worked collectively with our team. Our team respects our knowledge of the condition. I respect them as clinicians. And we totally have an effective system that works for us. Because if I did not have that system, <laughs> I think I would have folded myself as being a parent carer. So the passport for me and for Natalie was immensely needed because it was just sad to see time money quality of life you know being affected by something that was just so simple yeah this is amazing
0: Angela and the phrase that's going through in my mind and it links back to a podcast that I did with Rachel Grimaldi who invented Card Medic and very similar in a way in terms of something that you think well this is so simple that surely somebody must have thought of it beforehand. And the phrase I came yeah the the phrase I came up with Rachel was simply brilliant. Now that's what I'm hearing here that it's simple and I love simple things and it's brilliant because it meets all those different objectives. And I'm thinking well hang on a minute nobody wants to wait in A&E but then in this case each minute that passes each hour that passes it's dangerous you can see that you know what needs to happen and also you've got a young person or now a young adult and in terms of what it means to them none of us want to wait in A&E but for some people it's particularly difficult or impossible and making everything everything worse so I'm really intrigued by the passport and I'm sure the the listeners are as well so what would the passport look like? I come to hospital and I've got this document. Yeah. Just talk us through that.
1: So the document basically will just be a passport, identifying the patient, data about all the normal numbers, you know, the um NHS number. And then it will have a strategy of care. So for example, Natalie's one is clinical, Joel's one, because he's autistic and LD his one is a bit different. So the clinical one is, so Natalie goes into hospital and if she's got to go into A&E, hi, my name's Natalie, then it has all her details that she needs. Then it also has the team that look after Natalie. So it has a cardiologist, it has a hematologist, it has everybody that looks after Natalie there's their point of call. If you're not sure as a consultant, you refer. You refer to to this number here. You refer and you speak to the haematology team because they know Natalie. But also, if you engage with Natalie, Natalie knows her condition too. So please respect the fact that she actually knows her condition as well. So collectively working together with that team, communication, and that passport will put you on a pathway where It will tell you. So she'll call her hematology team. She'll say, Right, okay, I'm due for a cross match. They say, Right, Nat, come in. She'll go in for a cross match. Then they'll cross match and they say, Right, transfusion the next day, depending on her HB. So the pathway just identifies the clinical need and it puts everybody in contact with who needs to be contacted so if a consultant's not sure then he can phone the hematology he can phone the consultant for the heart you know depending on whatever their clinical need is so it basically is an easy strategy just to go through any system because protocols don't suit everybody
0: things like we don't do transfusions at the weekend that is not a patient centered protocol pathway yeah
1: especially where natalie's condition is so rare and and i'm like have you ever heard of dyno black anemia no i've never heard of it okay so you've never heard of it so at that point that pathway would have been perfect and this is why i designed it because you need to know you need to know what dyno black anemia is and you need to know what to do so for us the passport was you need to know it and you need to know what to do if you're not sure of it then we'll teach you we'll show you You know we'll put you in contact with people that know the condition very well we know it very well we collectively work together as a team so there's no mistakes made and I
0: would imagine that with very rare conditions for a clinician to say I don't know is a sign of strength because they couldn't possibly know all about everything yeah rather than assume that they know things and then do something which could be very dangerous.
1: And then at that point, because when Natalie was younger, I started a charity called DBA UK. And it was collectively putting everyone together to communicate and speak together and support each other through the journey. Because one thing that we did identify with Natalie's condition, it was a serious condition and it was a bone marrow defect. You know, she doesn't make red blood cells from the bone marrow. And back in the days when she was younger, it the only option we had was a bone marrow transplant. But we refused that one so it was a serious condition so we also had to communicate with everybody and putting everyone in contact it spread the knowledge I respected a consultant that stood in front of me and said well I've never heard of it exactly and I'm like okay well here's a link if you're interested and you want to learn about it then there we go there's the experts learn about diamond black fan anemia because you will meet these young people, they are going to be in your healthcare, at some point they are going to be, and now I think there's quite a lot now, I'm not sure, I've not looked at the numbers on how many diamond black fan anemia, but on the support group that I, well we initiated it, I think there was about 250 in the UK, so which was a fair good amount, And also that was really important for information like the NHS. It was important for doctors to tap into and and understand about the condition and make links with doctors that specialised in it as well. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're just mentioning in passing setting up support groups. That must have helped so many others because it can be very isolating, can't it, to have something that's really unusual and
1: to come together with other people who
0: really understand.
1: It was really important for me because I'm a talker and I think collectively, if people work together, it's easier. And I I suppose I had this vision for just pulling a group of people together. We were just four parents, four children, who had the same condition. And then after six months, DBA UK was born, we uh, writ up a constitution We got it into a charity status and I think now there must be about four or five hundred families on their books. So my vision for that was more so for the children because it was really tough. It was really tough having a transfusion every month and as a parent I identified that and I thought wow it's a tough thing for for a baby to have a transfusion yeah. And I thought we need to bring everyone together. We need to kind of unite with this and talk about it and support each other and let the kids forget about having a transfusion and and that's why we chose the PGL centre in Lincolnshire because it was activities, kayaking, it was doing the stuff that you know these kids spend a lot of time in hospital and let's just be normal for the day, let's do some rafting and kayaking and sit around the bonfire and get some marshmallows because these kids have spent so much time in hospital being transfused and prodded and, you know, cause there's other complications. There's, it's a long journey. It's a long clinical journey. So it was really important. So that was my vision mainly for the children to relate with another child that had the condition and understand that you're not the only one there really. And it was also good for the parents. Yeah. It was really nice to meet other parents and give them some hope that. Things are changing. We're all pushing for change. We want things to change. And Natalie's 35, you know, and it's given other people hope that as bad as it sounds, life does still go on.
0: Because it's all about quality of life, isn't it? And I think the way that you've described, you can hear a, a phrase like, my child's got a rare condition. But thank you for sharing that, Angela, because I think for people to hear what that means for the child to have a monthly blood transfusion or whatever it might be. And they're just children. They're children who want to live their lives like other children. So yeah. to be able to bring that normality to them and br- bring them together with other children who really understand is such a a wonderful thing to have done. And the other thing we've talked about Alder Hay in passing. Yeah. And I know when we had a chat beforehand, I was really Kind of got those goosebumps around the work that you've done at Alder Hay because I'm proud of the work that we've done with Alder Hay around whose shoes and true co production and leading ultimately to a new neonatal unit. So I've been to Alder Hay, I've been with Helen Calvert, the mum who introduced us, and Joanne Minford, the wonderful paediatric surgeon that I was working with, who's just been transformational. But you were involved in the actual design of Alder Hay. And I remember the story you told me about. Why would you design it with four walls? Tell us a bit about that.
1: So I was at an appointment with my daughter. And, you know, as you do, I'm very vocal positively, the best I could be. And uh, we were looking for a a consultant who was for my son. And then this lady passed me. And she said, I'm so sorry. She said, I've overheard your conversation and and stuff like that. And she said, um, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, we have the same issue. So. Then my son got an appointment, and then I got a phone call. She said, I really hope that you don't mind me contacting you, but the chief executive, the points that you were raising when we were communicating were really important. And we'd like to invite you to the tenure strategy build for older hay. So she said, We'd like to invite you, the chief executive would like to invite you. Um, how, do you, how you know, would you like to attend? So I was like, Yeah, that's fine, brilliant. So off I went and I'm a practitioner by trade because part of my program for myself was to educate, educate, educate while I was caring because it was my normality. And I went into the boardroom, um, sat with Balfour BT, chief executives, directors, I think there was another two parents there as well they also got invited and we shared our views around the board table what we thought as parent carers we'd been in Older Hay for a long time and you know obviously we would be there for a long time and as a practitioner I believe that I sat with Natalie in all of her from when she went to surgery from her cleft palate and from when she had an Ivy cuff and Pikmin lines fitted. I spent a lot of time with Natalie, all the time she spent in hospital, so did I. And fabulous. Obviously, the work they, they do is absolutely just life-saving and 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 amazing work they do, but your environment is everything. And the four walls was just not it was it was just not right. It just didn't feel right. So when they were doing the new build for Order Hay, what I explained was that, you know, visually a child will heal, you know, if they see things. If you're in just like a surrounding four walls, you know, your healing process, you're not, your mind is not going to be active. You're not going to be looking at things. And for me, the vision was, was to put the, bring the park into the hospital because, It was just a ward and it was very gloomy. It was just clinical. It was just medical. It was just the nurses. But it was also, my vision for it was to bring in the outside world a little bit into the wards for the children. Because as a practitioner, holistic practitioner, visualization is really important. It's part of the healing. It's part of your well-being. And that was not in the ward so by bringing the park and making the front of the hospital glass the children could sit on the ward and look outside and see the real world moving because it's almost felt like the segregation from the real world and a ward and I thought part of healing let them see the real world let them see the lady coming with her two dogs every morning at nine o'clock you know and the and the builder walking across the park with his hat on going to work and all the cars and the kids going to school that was real that was the real world you know it took out the segregation from being wow, well and I believe that by adding that to the ward, it would be happier. And if they're happier, they're going to heal quicker. So initially, you won't have bed blocking. You won't have sick children being in places longer than they need to. Let's get them healed and out. Let's make it a happy experience. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom. It doesn't have to be sad. Let's just make the two worlds meet, you know, and open the front hospital up and bring outside in. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So that's another simply brilliant idea, isn't it? How simple, just to be able to see life. And it reminds me, I think a podcast you might enjoy, Angela. I did one with Joe Pons LaPlana, who tweets as Roaring Nurse, which gives you a clue about what he's about. Yeah. And a part of his story was literally and obviously taking a risk in terms of his job to some extent and what you're allowed to do yeah. to rearrange ITU so that a young man could see out of the window because that's what he'd said mattered to him. Yeah. And he said that as soon as that happened, that the, the guy started to heal in a way that was not anticipated. So powerful.
1: I totally and, I, and I'm and i glad I took them actions with my daughter because that's the way that we done it because I used to take her out, even with the transfusion. I was taught how to. She had an IV transfusion that would last for, first unit of blood, last for about uh, three hours. So we'd go for a walk because I was trained, I had to be trained to lock off the transfusion, but we were allowed to go for a walk because that was that's what was important to us, to keep engaged. I just wanted to take the institution away from healthcare it needed to be a better journey because I just felt that as a parent that needed to be done you know Natalie would often stand on the back of her IV transfusion when Natalie was transfused it was the IV with the little wheels and you'd wheel it down and we'd I'd stand her on the back and you know we'd have fun with that you know I'm not everyone was (laughs) pleased about that but I was trained by the ward to identify if anything was going wrong you know so i knew how to the reason why i asked them to train me is because natalie was getting very bored in one place so her behavior was starting to change her mood was starting to change i said i need to take this child off the ward and i need to be moving somewhere just can we go to the shop you know in the hospital let's just can we just move with people so show me what to do what's the safest way i can do this I need to do this and they taught me how to manage that and we would often go to the shop she would stand on the back of her uh, IV she'd have her IV and <laughs> stand on the back and it became a game it was fun it was yeah. fun days it wasn't traumatic it wasn't a sad experience we created fun with what we had and uh, they were the good old days <laughs> <laughs> and
0: as any bored child would do, you know, if yeah. they're if they're bored, they're going to play up. Whereas if they're having fun being wheeled along with mummy and and having a laugh, then it's, it's so positive, all round. And it links Angela again with another podcast you might enjoy. The one we've done around family integrated care, yeah, and that's with Nadia Leake and Rachel Colum, and they're two mums, and they're talking about how exactly what you're saying you know being trained with medical procedures right from the beginning yeah. so that you can be a proper mummy or proper parent to your child and feel confident and taking that possibly premature or sick baby back home after the neonatal experience yeah and being able to be a to feel like you're the mummy rather than the theoretical mummy which of this hospital child you know, it's very mm. powerful
1: yeah i was very engaged in natalie's condition because I just needed to be engaged in it I needed to know where we were going I needed to manage it I needed to support Natalie Natalie would then want to learn about it and she now lives very independently on her own in her own apartment and yeah she has her little ups and downs and her complications but considering we were told she'd never make it past five and that was 30 years ago and well what was very important for us as well was consultant actually explained this to us the other day he says when natalie was younger it was really important to i said there's two ways we can do this now either your condition controls you or you control your manager condition and that is what i taught natalie from a very very young age and her consultant stood in front of us and he said clinically natalie should not be here he said we've been baffled to why she's still here He said, and the only conclusion that we've all (laughs) thought is the power of how she thinks. Yeah. And so this was living proof that having fun with our care and treatment was really important. And keeping it real as possible was so, so important. You know, not taking away the reality of the normal world, you know. Sometimes people can get bogged down with it's clinical and then it becomes quite, It can be a sad time or it can be a happy time. You know, it's really important which way you like look in that. And this is why, for us, effective care that works is important. It's important for the patient. It's important for the carer. And it's important for the NHS. The NHS is the cost. The carer, my mental stability is very important to take care of my child. If I'm not well, then I can't take care of my child. My child's quality of life is vital so it's an all winner you can't lose it's an all win
0: well i'm loving this conversation because having fun and not just for children for all of us and the yeah. people at work is a big part of what i do and in terms of firing people up to think that it doesn't all have to be difficult and pathways and procedures it's about kind of like just seeing the human side of things yeah. and firing people up to think that they can Make a difference just as you're doing. I mean, I, you know, I think you've understated your story, and you know very well that obviously it was Natalie's thinking, but it was having a mum like you who didn't take no for an answer and who didn't just roll over when no. they said, you know, your child won't live past five. No. And it's a fantastic thing that parents are people who love their children, you know, who get labeled as, if you like, family carers, but it's the the love obviously of of your child and the children that that shines through but it comes at a cost and everything that the NHS can do to work with you and support that and recognise that and keep you well and having your own life as well rather than just be totally consumed by the carer role it's how to tease out that isn't it and all work together for quality of life for everybody
1: I think that's why my outlet was to study so I was doing holistic therapies, so the nurses were absolutely made up because my training days, they would all be getting treatments. You know, when all the kids were asleep and, and, and we'd be on the wards as mums, I'd be like, right, that's it, you know, I'm doing therapies. <laughs> Who wants one? So it really, it, it, really, it really did work. But one thing I will say, I mean, for Natalie's one was really important because there was a clinical need, but my son is autistic. And he's um, Asperger's autistic. And, you know, for mental health, also the passport was really vital. This is where speedboarding came as well, because I was working in mental health services, young adults, young children, and I could not believe how hard it was to access their healthcare. It was absolutely my jaw hit the floor because I thought, wow, if this child... Does not have a pathway, the child cannot access its healthcare simply due to the autism, the sensory overload. It is so difficult for patients, clinical or mental health. And these passports are, are, are vital for accessibility and quality.
0: And I think you were talking about children, was it in a residential setting?
1: I think. It was challenging. So for young adults who have severe challenging behaviors, severe meltdowns, they can go from two staff members to four in naught point seconds. And it was finding out a way of I was asked to take a young person to hospital and because it would not been successful, and I was like, right, okay. I understood her autism, because at that time my son was 21, second year in university, just diagnosed with autism, Asperger's, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and I kind of understood that anyway, and I kind of see the challenges. I was asked to take this young person to hospital, because obviously due to the behaviours and, and stuff like that, it was not easy to access. And because of my knowledge of autism Asperger's and mental health as well, because obviously a lot of my qualifications now are around that, um, I understood what was needed to do. So for him, the waiting room was not an option, not an option at all. Uh, you had to worry about the safety of others, staff, us anyone else who was around because if that young person went into a complete meltdown then it would be aggression it would be violence because obviously just due to the anxiety and and stuff like that so what we found was I designed the passport around it was a sensory it was sensory so we identified what was going wrong looked at what was going wrong and we rectified that. So the issue was, obviously, was around sitting, sitting in a waiting room. We, we can't sit in a waiting room. The noise, the smell, the amount of people, the activity. For this person, it was not an option. So I said, right, okay. Because at one point, Natalie couldn't sit in long waiting rooms. And we had a bout of that for a very long time where... It just wasn't working. So I said, can we come at the end of clinic? Because it's easier. We just come in through the door, see the consultant, and then we go. So I kind of used that same method where we... So, yeah, the last two patients, can we be one of them last two patients? When we went into the appointment, we need someone who understands about autism because I have an autistic person here, and we have to get it right. There's no room for error. If we don't get this right, we have a sensory overload, we have an overload, and then the behaviour will change and then we're in trouble, we need to exit the building. So we need to get it right, right from the minute we walk through that door. So what I requested was, I knew the team at Older Hay anyway, because obviously my engagement with Natalie. So we worked with the learning disability nurses and we said, right, we're coming in. So we'd had a consultation the day before, we're coming in tomorrow this is the time she will meet us at the door go to the door and then we'd go in to see the consultant so rather than sitting in we had a sensory room where it was just sensory based so while we were waiting that five ten minutes we had a sensory room which controlled the behavior and also identified the need for that young person because obviously that was what was needed. And it also kept the young person safe, and it also kept other people safe. And it was the first time in a very long time that that young person actually had any medical attention, because it was always a challenge. You know, it was always a big, big challenge, because everyone was obviously worried about behaviours and the risks and stuff like that. So when we actually got a heart scan... Yet again, it turned into play. It turned into excitement. It turned into, wow, look at this machine. Look what it does. And It was engagement with that young person and and, and looking at, you know, wow, look at this. You know, how amazing is this machine? It can look at your heart. Look at your heart beating. And it was involving that person with their care. And yet again, back to collectively working together involving the person with their own care and the fascination was there so we had a gap at that point we had that gap time to get that trick get that get in what we needed to get in was the ecg and it was done for fun you know and it then became a great experience it wasn't complete meltdown complete bad behavior, it was something that that young person, and I said, all you need to do is engage him in his care, if he understands what is going on, and he's safe, and he feels safe around his environment, you won't have no problems, and that's exactly what we've done, and that pathway was effective, it worked, and well, I think we attended maybe four appointments when it was a complete disaster. And my son's autistic as well. And it's so important. There's nothing worse than, you know, and this is what I was doing some work with my local GP surgery. And I was saying, because my son, Joel, he's autistic. So he had an appointment and then he's called me and he's put the phone down because he's like, mama can't deal with it. And I'm like, right, okay. And what's your problems? You know, and he said the doctors just not understanding. I said, okay, fine. So I requested my GPS if someone on hand had autism awareness. Are they aware? You know, it's so important that awareness goes in. The doctors need to be understanding that autistic are uniquely different people, and they need to be respected for that. Rather looked. different and not everyone understands that way you know sometimes you have to change your way to make care work more effectively and if that person has that need like for my son if you explain too much to him there's too much information you know if you just say joel go to the doctors pick up the form and get a blood test 10 o'clock that's it so it's understanding. So I was asking for people to be educated around this, you know, and because that's the first point of call, isn't it? When you walk into any GP, doctor's surgery, hospital, if you've got no one that doesn't know about autism and mental health, then you're going to be in the protocol, which probably is not yeah. going to work. <laughs> so I think...
0: In the last 10 minutes, I mean, people talk about personalised care. And I think in the last 10 minutes, you've probably given a masterclass, what it actually means, you know, like in terms of preparing the appointment, you know, something really simple, like the last appointment of the day, someone's got to get it. So why not the person who actually needs it? for
1: Yeah. Because I just feel that, you know, a lot of trauma. You know, hospital shouldn't be about trauma. It shouldn't be that mentally stays with them young people. It's got to change. It's got to be it's gonna a, change. A, a positive, happy experience because the effect from that psychologically has got to be a lot better. Why should hospital be the place that you want to run from? You should yeah. initially want to go there because you, you understand what's happening. And I just feel that... It shouldn't be a negative experience. It shouldn't be a bad thing. It should be effective for everyone, you know, patients, NHS, whoever it needs to be, the staff.
0: Families. Yeah. I had the other side of the coin with my mum when she was early 90s, poor mobility at the time, and needed a lot of help, and being offered a, or, you know, sent a hospital appointment at Eight twenty or whatever it is in the morning you know it's just not going to happen yeah just not going to happen and the level of preparation and anxiety and parking yeah. and goodness knows what that would go around that so i think the phrase is it's not rocket science is it Angela? yeah
1: yeah it's not rocket science and i think <laughs> when you calculate the waste whether it be time effort money the calculation of that is massive you know, it's absolutely massive, and if people were to go back to the drawing board and look at that, you know, hospitals should be, okay, I'm not feeling very well today, I identified that I do need to go there, or a medical clinicians identified I need to go there, so I will go there, it should only be used for the purpose it's built, you know, it shouldn't be used for any other thing other than the purpose that it's built for, you know, That's how I see it. (laughs) So, (laughs) what a conversation. Yeah. And I also think that, like carers, I think we should be recognised for what we do, the input that we have, the knowledge, because what the NHS has to understand is that you trained us. For the mothers and the fathers and the carers, the caregivers who look after sick adults and choose to take that, role in their life they need to respect that they trained us you know they trained us so they have to respect our words our knowledge is not from google or textbook our knowledge is from what we've been taught by standing with possibly some of the best conditions in the in the country in the world you know and that information has is, is come back to us and I think the NHS need to identify that that there are some families who are very proactive and looking after their their sick family members and they're very knowledgeable and we need to have that respect because it's not just being that that mum you know or dad or caregiver it's, it's the knowledge that comes with us some people are really keen to understand and know about the illness and my life now is based upon you know, I'm now going to write books and, and become an author. I'm, I'm a holistic practitioner. You know, I've got my qualifications around mental health. My gosh, my clinical knowledge is just literally just, you know, amazing amount of stuff I've, I've had to do. And Ivy have calfs I've saved Natalie's life at one point. She went into cardiac arrest and I had to do CPR to keep her alive. And so my whole life is now clinical and, and as a parent care, I'm very heavily engaged in uh planning services with our CCGs and and making quality care insurance really is a is really important to me and and off so that journey that I've took with Natalie and Joel has really sort of like made me who I am today. I'm now going to move to Cornwall on the twenty fifth of this month. I'm a practitioner my children are fully grown they're all in their own homes and living independently and driving and doing what they need to do best and I'm now going to take my knowledge and my training and I'm going to start a retreat in Cornwall and become an author and still stay engaged with the X by experience because that to me is quality um it, it is a it is a passion and it's really important and i just think that's something that i always do it's very important to me yeah just take life a little bit slower so i think we've got a whole episode in the
0: future about your life in cornwall <laughs> i think we can't go into it now because it will be yeah. but the, the retreat i think is aiming to help children and give them a a great experience I, i've got my links with the fabulous teams in Cornwall around healthcare and specifically maternity care so you know I'm sure that our stories are coming together more and more I mean it, it just seems extraordinary that our different experiences but very important in our lives in Order Hay and our yeah. future stories in, in Cornwall and the fact that your name's Angela Cornwall uh, <laughs> is, is just a bonus <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, thank so thank you Angela oh, okay. I, I think it's such an important contribution that you've made there. I'm trying to get now that, you know, people say they want to listen to lived experience stories. They want to hear from family carers and people on this podcast series are contributing that so knowledgeably and so generously. So let's get people listening to these podcasts and make a difference.
1: Fabulous. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If so, Please subscribe now to hear more of these fascinating conversations on your favourite podcast platform and please leave a review. I tweet as whose shoes. Thank you for being on this journey with me and let's hope that together we can make a difference.